there are so many who experience struggle in coming to Christ. Cannot be denied that for some, coming to faith in Jesus as Savior is a long, protracted process fraught with delay and doubts and fear and retreats, many other things. It's almost like taking two steps forward, you know, and then three steps back. We have learned in our study, for example, of Pilgrim's Progress on Sunday evenings that there are impediments on the road to the celestial city, mostly of our own sinful doing, sidetracks, you know, rabbit trails. Someone says, well, the way to go is this way, and so we try it for a while. And it's the wrong advice. It's the wrong road. We do not respond quickly nor simply to the promises of the gospel. We make thing diff, things difficult by our musings. We think, it cannot be that simple. It cannot be that elementary. I mean, we're talking God here. We're talking salvation of my soul. We're talking about eternal destinies and eternal values. And so we try to figure salvation out. We try to figure God out. And there are a lot of impediments that come our way. And I want to look at some of these this morning. Number one, firstly, ignorance of the gospel. That's an impediment. What the gospel is, how we may lay hold of it, and its promises for ourselves. You know, despite the copious volumes in Christian bookstores and a plenitude of gospel preachers who, like Paul, can say, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. Romans 1, verse 16. Nonetheless, it remains that people run here and there over hill and dale hoping to find what is right under their nose. In their panic, they say with embittered Job, If only I knew where to find him! If only I could go to his dwelling! Job 23, verse 3. It is ignorance, however, that makes the search protracted. The truth is, what Paul preached to the Athenians, speaking of God's formation of the nations, Paul went on to say, God did this so that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out for Him and find Him, though, listen to this, He is not far from each one of us. Wow. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are His offspring. Acts 17 Verse 27, 28. What he is saying here is that the Creator is close to His creation. He upholds it by the word of His power. God is not hiding. God is as near as your next breath. And so Isaiah exhorts us, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call on Him while He's near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will freely pardon. Isaiah 55, verse 6, verse 7. The people don't know that. And so in their ignorance, it's an impediment, because people are looking for God in all wrong places. <clears throat> That was borne out to me this week as I watched a little bit of Whitney Houston's funeral and heard the eulogies. 
and the absolutely stupid and almost blasphemous statements that people in the entertainment world made with regard to Whitney Houston. One actor said, God will have to marvel when Whitney Houston is in heaven in his presence that he, God, could create such a perfect person. No understanding of the gospel that we are sinners in need of perfection and that that perfection comes only in the person of Jesus Christ. And so ignorance of the gospel is an impediment as to why people don't come to it. <laughs> There's another gospel that they're following that's no gospel at all, Galatians chapter 1. Secondly, preconceived assumptions are an impediment. One assumption is the merging in thought of religion and Christianity merged together. I hear it all the time on Fox News when they are discussing, for example, the social agenda of the conservative candidates. Some conservatives, uh, I will list Sarah Palin, are committed Christians in belief and in practice, but the pundits speak of her religion. Her religion. Religion is what men invent in place of Christianity. Religion assumes that God is to be approached through ceremony and ritual. And sadly, sadly, even Israel of old came to this while they were living in gross sin. Sin so detestable to God that God refused to hear their prayers anymore. Let me read it for you. It's in Isaiah 1. And listen to this language. It's, it's scalding. It's scandalous. God is talking to Israel. Here's what He says. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. <laughs> listen to the law, you people of Gomorrah. And if you know your Bible history, you know that Sodom and Gomorrah were two very wicked cities that God incinerated with brimstone from heaven. And yet He's calling His people this. Hey, you Sodomites, hey, you Gomorrahites, I have a controversy against you. He goes on. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings of rams and of the fat of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who asks this of you? This, this trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, Sabbath, convocations. I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of hearing them. Now, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Isaiah 1, verse 10 through 15. So what is evident here is that what started out, what started out as obeying the law of God with regard to bringing animal sacrifices to make atonement for sin, what started out that way had deteriorated into mere ritual. Personal faith in and love for God, that flew out the window, and all the while they kept the ceremony. They assumed that so long as the rituals continued, they proved their fidelity to God. Well, you know, the show must go on. Let's keep the show going. But their faith 
their faith had become a religion. Their obedience was now hollow and empty. There was no heart in it. Oh, and the other side of the coin, there was blood on their hands. The context says that the important matters of righteousness, of caring for the indigent, and the widows being honest in their business transactions, they all, those things all became a moot point. But here's what they were assuming. They were assuming that religion and Christianity or fidelity to God are the same. And let me tell you, as long as people think that, coming to the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is going to be an impediment to them. Because people do go to church, you know, and they do pray, and they do give their money. They're keeping the ritual. Another assumption is that God's salvation is like the mixture of cream and milk that we call half and half. Part law, part grace, part their effort, part the work of Christ. Yet Paul teaches this and, ha and tackles it head on when he writes, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. Now listen to how he defines grace. Chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, that is if it were by works, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, and ears so that they could not hear, to this very day. Romans 11, 5 through 8. Salvation, as I taught some, week, some weeks ago, is not a partnership with you doing your part and God doing His part, and that equals salvation. No, salvation is all of grace from start to finish. But if people are raised in a religious environment in which they are told there is something for them to do, then the refreshing fragrance of free grace will be masked. And it may be a long, long time before Peter's exhortation takes root. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Acts 3 and verse 19. Let me say it again, that preconceived assumptions are an impediment to coming simply to Christ. Well, i got to do something. Well, religion, that's the same as Christianity. Would you come to the gospel if you believe those things? No. You wouldn't come to the gospel of grace. You might come to a false gospel. Number three. Poor teaching is a third impediment. One danger here is the blending of thought in the name of being gracious, the blending of thought of believer and unbeliever. We do not want to be so bold as to say that so-and-so is lost and bound for hell. Nor do we want to appear to be arrogant by saying, so-and-so is saved and they're bound for heaven. The first thought is viewed as being too harsh, and the second thought is being too presumptuous. So what we end up with are the tweenies. The tweenies. People who are not quite lost and in need of a Savior and not quite saved and assured of glory. It is assumed that this, this in-between stage, this tweeny stage, is a better place to be than in a place of complete and utter alienation from God. 
Do you know that Israel of old tried this twilight state? On a number of occasions, they did. Let me read it for you. Jehoshaphat, son of Asa, king of Judah, in the fourth year of Ahab, king of Israel. Jehoshaphat was 35 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 25 years. In everything, he walked in the ways of his father Asa, and he did not stray from them. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. The high places, however, were not removed, and the people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Now, the high places are the little idolatry places up on the, in, the, in the woods. And then there's this other statement. Jehoshaphat was also at peace with the king of Israel. Who was the king of Israel at the time of Jehoshaphat's reign? Wicked Ahab and his wife Jezebel in the northern kingdom. 1 Kings 22, verses 41 through 44. See what he was going on? He's true to the Lord. He's trying to lead the people down the worship of Jehovah. But the high places are still around. And so the people are sneaking up into the mountains and bowing before their idols. So, God sent the armies of Assyria, in to capture and exile Israel's entire northern kingdom. And one would have thought that years in exile under the rule of godless kings would have cured their half-half religion. But here's what we read. Then the king of Assyria gave this order. Make one of the priests that you took captive from Samaria, make them go back to live there, and teach the people what the God of that land requires. So, one of the priests who had been exiled from Samaria came to live in Bethel, and he taught them how to worship Jehovah. Nevertheless, each national group made its own gods in the several towns where they settled, and they set them up in the shrines the people of Samaria had made at the high places. They worship the Lord, but they also appointed all sorts of their own people to officiate for them as priests in the shrines at the high places. They worship the Lord, but they also serve their own gods in accordance with the customs of the nations from which they had been brought. 2 Kings 17. 27 through 33. They practiced the tweeny religion. Worship Jehovah. And worship my own little idols too. Brethren, poor teaching, and in particular the modern day teaching that salvation is a combination of exercising one's free will choices along with becoming recipients of God's grace is an impediment to coming simply to Christ. So long as a person stands with one foot in self-righteousness and the other in Christ's imputed righteousness, it's going to be difficult to bring men to grace alone and faith alone. They can never be sure that the quantity of their unrighteous deeds is enough to please God or that the quality of their righteousness is sufficiently holy to match the perfection that God demands. As boldly as I can say it, God does not accept tweeny people. Here it is, Revelation 3, verse 16. To the church of Laodicea, God said, So, because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. See, tweenies. I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Revelation 3, verse 16. We have a whole lot of people in this country because... <clears throat> 
poor teaching. They have an impediment in coming to Christ alone. Number four, lack of humility is an impediment to coming simply to Christ. If I were making uh, this list of impediments according to dominance, then pride would be listed first. We do not want to be saved as a charity case. We want to have a hand in it. And what is more, the world, in almost every difficulty of life, tells us that we must have a hand in it and that when we apply ourselves, we can do anything that we set our minds to do. Kids are being taught this as part of the self-esteem profile in our secular schools. It's part of every school curriculum. Now, now, even schools are moving away from grading because they don't want the kid who gets an F to feel bad for failing. Can't have that. So we just won't grade anymore. When therefore we come up against a God who will not allow our pride a speck of importance or ability, we fight back. We resist. We protest that we are as good as the next man, as though goodness had merit with God. And when God says, as He does say, all have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one, Romans 3 verse 12. We find ourselves in opposition to the God whose salvation and heaven we hope to win. We chafe at a sovereign God who says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Romans 9 verse 15. The God men are willing to tolerate is the one who does not sit on a throne, but who is subject to the will of the people. A puppet prince whose reign is only viable if the people vote him in. And whose continual reign is at the discretion of the subjects. Jesus of most people's thinking is a pathetic wimp, a sissified male figure who has been emasculated by their own arrogant ascendancy. They create the God they will bow down to. Listen to God as He speaks in Psalm 50. And again, He's speaking to His people Israel, but here's what He says. Sacrifice thank offerings to God. In our language we'd say, be thankful. Be thankful. Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will honor me. Now that's, not a, <laughs> that's not a God that our people in this country want to hear. He goes on. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join in with him. You throw in with your lot with the adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You speak continually against your brother and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I kept silent. And you thought, you thought I was altogether like you. See what's going on? They're making God over into their image, their thought patterns. But I will rebuke you and accuse you to your face. Consider this, you forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with none to rescue. He who sacrifices thanks offerings honors me. And he, he prepares the way so that I may show him 
the salvation of God. Psalm 50, verse 14 through 23. Here's the pattern. Be thankful. Honor God. Receive salvation from God. Be thankful. Honor God. Receive salvation from God. And if they're not willing to follow that pattern, the last thing which they want, salvation, will elude them. Hold on to your pride and you will never come to Christ. And you will never be shown the salvation of the Lord. And I'll have more to say that in a few minutes. But that's an important thing. Number five. Belief in exceptionalism is another impediment to coming simply to Christ. There are some people who view themselves as exceptions to the rule. God says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And they answer, not me. Again, God says, as it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one, Romans 3, verse 10. And these people say, well, that doesn't apply to me. I live a good life. Again, God says, there is no one who understands. No one seeks God, Romans 3, verse 11. And these people say, I'm a seeker. I'm here, aren't I? Ready and willing to learn. Whatever God says, in terms of His insight and evaluation, these people think of themselves as the exception to the rule. Do you know, even Peter saw himself as the exception. Jesus took a considerable amount of time the night of His crucifixion to warn Peter of the coming events so that he would be prepared for the great temptation that he would face of denying Christ. What was Peter's response? Here it is. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Matthew 26, verse 33. Lord, <laughs> please, please, don't list me with all these other guys. They may turn their backs on you, but not me. I am the exception. In Peter's case, he repented of his arrogance and learned what others scarcely know. That when God makes a statement on our spiritual state, that statement allows for no exception. All have sinned, all fall short, none seek, none are righteous, none are good. And it is our utter bankruptcy of moral aptitude that demands a Savior other than ourselves, a Savior outside ourselves who can deal completely with our sin and our failures. And that's what God is trying to get across to people in the gospel. It isn't well with you, you're not okay. What I'm saying about you in your relationship to me is true as true as true. Don't accept yourself. Those who consider themselves the exception will exception their soul all the way to hell. Brethren, there are dozens of impediments to coming simply to Christ, but at least consider these five seriously. Ignorance of the gospel, preconceived assumptions, poor teaching, lack of humility, and number five, the belief that you constitute an exception to God's rule. Now in addition to that, there are some non-essentials for salvation that some people think are essentials. Point B in your outline. The feeling of despair I've listed as number one. And while it is true that in presenting the gospel to sinners we must call on them to turn away from their sin as they turn to Christ for forgiveness, it is not 
listen, it is not necessary that they experience utter despair. When despair sets in, hope takes flight. But people must have hope. They must have belief that God will honor His promises. Because the gospel is a promise we're making to people. If they don't have any hope that God's going to keep His word, why would they ever come to Christ? Why would they ever want to come to Christ? You see, despair arises from unbelief. People give up. They don't believe. They don't trust. They confess that they cannot trust. They are in a sea of their own making, tossed to and fro without a compass. So, are we saying that unless people feel hopeless, they can't be saved? Well, I think that's absurd. The gospel proclaims hope. And it calls on sinners to respond, not to sit in idle weariness stymied by despair. Jesus Christ is held out in the gospel as the one who satisfies God as an atoning sacrifice. And if Jesus satisfies God, He satisfies me. Or should. If God accepts His cross work, shall I not accept it too? Some people are beaten severely by morbid and unbiblical thought, either of their own doing or of Satan's doing or of poor preaching by men of good intentions. Some see themselves as such horrible sinners that even God could not forgive them. Others would say, well, if he could, he won't, because I'm not one of his elect. Let me say that the secret things belong to God, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, and you and I must not live our lives second-guessing his decrees. You don't know who the elect are, and neither do I, and we don't have to in order to believe in that. But see, they use the decrees of God back against him. Well, I'm not saying because you, God, you didn't elect me. Well, let me say that whatever your dark thoughts about God and salvation, all these are to be buried in the blood of Christ and in his forgiveness. Sin cannot aid grace. Despair, which is unbelief, cannot be a prerequisite to faith and trust. And so I say again that feelings of despair are not essential for salvation. In fact, in some ways, they militate against it. Secondly, fear, weeping, anguish, inner contemplation. These are not necessary either. Now, I don't doubt that many Christians are so after experiencing one or more of these, of the great difficulties and vexations of soul. But there are equally many people who are Christians who have never experienced these things. Paul could say of Timothy, who had been tutored by his godly mother and grandmother, From infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, verse 15. John the Baptist, Samuel would be other examples. And so it is for many children raised in Christian homes for whom church attendance and gospel preaching was just a part of their lives from day one. When Jesus was preached as Savior, they went to Him in faith there and then, and they trusted Him as completely as they would the word of their own honest parents. They were forgiven, and today they continue to live for the Lord to this day. I was raised in a Christian home. That was my experience. Others, in the same vein, cannot tell you 
They cannot tell you the day or the hour of their salvation because it was so natural, so devoid of stress, so devoid of trauma that they cannot put a date on it. But to, again, today they're living holy lives and they're serving Jesus in the church. We dare not tell such people that they are not alive because they do not know their birthday. Judge honest judgment. Look at the life. See if they're living for the Lord. Now let me say that it is the nature of sinful man to delight in intricacies and to scorn the simple and the naive. Some make truth hard, easy work difficult. Again, it's a pride thing. Naaman was the commander of the king of Aram's army. And he also had something else going on. He was a leper. A Jewish servant girl informed Naaman's wife of Elisha, the prophet, who resided in Israel and who could help Naaman if Naaman would go over there and see him. Long story short, Naaman went to meet with Elisha. And he went laden down with gifts of gold and silver and clothing, all that kind of thing. And Elisha did not leave his house to speak to Naaman, but he sent a messenger saying, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleaned. 2 Kings 5 verse 10. So let's think about this. Naaman gets on his camels, his donkeys, whatever, horses. And he travels from Syria to Israel, for an audience with Elisha, the prophet of God. And Elisha doesn't even come out of his house. He sends, sends a messenger, go out there and say this to, to Naaman. What a firestorm that created. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Let me read to you. But Naaman went away angry, and he said, I, I thought that he would surely come out to me and, 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 and stand and, and, and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. I'm reading scripture here. This is what's going on. He goes on. Are not the rivers of Damascus better than any of the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and went off in a rage. 2 Kings 5, verse 11 and 12. We read, Naaman's servant went to him and he said, My father, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed. 2 Kings 5, verse 13. Thankfully, reason prevailed. Naaman went and washed and came back healed. And not only so, but he became a believer of Jehovah and took his newfound faith back to Aram along with stones and dirt to make an altar to God. And there he worshiped God from that day on. What's your point? It's this. He wanted to make the simple path of healing difficult. He wanted it to be difficult, something harder to do, something more dignified than dipping in the muddy Jordan River. There are people who hear the gospel and they say, that's too simple. It's got to be more to it than that. And yet I would say to them, you try to repent if you can. You try to believe if you can. And we'll see if it's simple or difficult. And we'll see if you need grace 
or if you can do it on your own. And so I say that fear and weeping and anguish and sleepless nights, none of that is essential for salvation. Christ says, come. And if you come, praise God. He'll answer. Now, if you look at our text with this Matthew 18, you'll notice that God calls sinners. Here's the gospel now. God calls sinners to childlike faith. Firstly, he demands a change in our adult thinking. Our text brings before us something which is all too common among believers, but something none of us would admit to. That's verse 1. The disciples came to Jesus and they asked, Well, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? We might answer piously, Well, that's obvious. Jesus is the greatest. But <laughs> true as that might be, the context demonstrates that the disciples' questions they were thinking of those who were the subjects of the kingdom. Who among the subjects of the kingdom are the greatest? And this was not the first time this issue came up. It was a nagging question that followed the disciples into, yes, Passover celebration, the night of Jesus' crucifixion. So the night of His crucifixion, they are thinking among themselves, Luke 22, verse 24, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. I find that quite revealing. Jesus is about to be arrested and tried and crucified, and they're thinking, ah, I'm greater than you. No, no, you're not. After all, I'm the spokesman for the group. And, I'm not. and back and forth they were going. And so Jesus answers in verse 3, and he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change, unless you change, you my disciples in name, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now what could Jesus possibly mean by becoming like little children? What characterizes little children? Well, they are naive, maybe even to the point of being gullible. I always have fun with my grandchildren, the little ones. <laughs> maybe I shouldn't do this, but <laughs> I, do. I tell them these fanciful tales, and I can see their eyes getting real big, you know. They're believing what Grandpa's saying, you know. And, and then I, towards the end of the story, I get this kind of little smile on my face. And they say, ah, Grandpa, you're teasing us. Yeah, but I had them for a few moments, you know. Uh, they're naive and they were, they were willingly believing. If Dad says it or Mom says it, they believe it, right? I mean, their experience revolves around the values that are taught in the home. It's kind of neat to see that they trust mom and dad that much. Again, I would say that little children are generally ignorant, but along with that, they are eager to learn. You'll never see learning so wonderfully grasped onto as you will in little children. They haven't reached the teenage years where the teens know more than mom and dad. They want to experience life to the fullest. And guess what? They have a sweet spot in the heart of Christ. On another occasion, the disciples tried to keep mothers from bringing their children to Jesus. And we read in the scripture, When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, the disciples, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms and he put his hands on them and blessed them. Mark 10, 14 through 16. 
Observe his statement. Receive the kingdom like a little child. Okay. Can children receive the kingdom? Can they receive the gospel? Obviously. Look at verse 6 of our text. Jesus speaks about these little ones who believe in me. Who believe in me. Folks, children will walk the streets of gold and glory when the intellectuals and atheists will be banned to the corridors of hell. Which will it be for you? You must change. If a child can enter when hearing the gospel, so can you. You don't get hung up on the impediments. And then lastly, notice Jesus' intolerance of pride. Verse 4 and 5 of our text. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You want to know about greatness? Let me tell you about greatness. He goes on, whoever welcomes a little child like this in my name welcomes me. Now Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, and yet he humbled himself to become one of us. And in context here, Jesus talks about the hand and the foot that causes us to sin and the eye that does the same thing. This is not just hyperbole. They stand for something. The hand stands for our abilities to do. We do things with our hands. Feet has to do with mobility to take us down the paths that we want to travel. Eyes have referred to our insight, our knowledge. And all of these symbols of human achievement in which men take great pride. I see. I can do. I can go. On my own, I don't need God. And Jesus is saying, you know, you better sever some of those things because if you don't, you don't get rid of that human pride, that adult pride, and humble yourself like a little child. What about the child? Well, insight is practically non-existent. Abilities are woefully inadequate. Mobility. They need dad's hand to safely walk across the street. They're not standing on any of these things. Did you know that God's people are dependent like that? They are. They've had to swallow their pride and lean solely on Christ and His power or they will never enter the kingdom. And if you despise such humility as this, look at verse 10. See to it that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. That is to say, they always have an audience with God through those angelic messengers of whom the writer of Hebrews speaks are not all angels Ministering spirits sent to serve those who inherit salvation. Hebrews 1 verse 14. You should have it so good. You can if you will come to Christ in humility and childlike faith. The angels of God marvel over one soul that comes to know Christ as Savior. And here we are in our pride saying, I'm not coming like a child. There's got to be something a little more dignified and adult about all of this, or I'm not coming. And Jesus says, in effect, then you will not enter. You see, pride is that, (laughs) that's that sin we talked about last week. Satan's sin of pride, which he proposed to Eve and Adam 
and they bought into it too. You know, if you eat of that tree over there that God says don't eat, you can be God. And they thought, and they said, yeah. And they died. Right now, if you don't know Christ as Savior, you're dead in trespasses and sins. And you cannot save yourself. Christ is the Savior outside of yourself that comes to you and will come to you if, like a child, you respond to Him. Holy Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You, Lord, for the Gospel which is simple enough, simple enough that a little child, as Jesus says in our text, a little child can believe in Him. On the other side of the coin, the gospel is so intricate and deep and profound that the greatest philosophers on earth cannot plummet its depths and cannot, after all is said and done, understand fully God's grace and God's mercy. Lord, may the Spirit of the living God come to those here today who are dead in trespasses and sin, and today shine upon them with the light of the gospel and remove the impediments that we talked about or whatever else keeping them from Christ. And Lord, may they come like that child. May they change their adult thinking and become humble of heart. Lord, you will find them and you will draw them. Grant them these things because our human pride is part of our sin. And until that sin is squelched by your grace, it too will keep us from coming to you. Honor the Lord Jesus Christ. We glory in his salvation that's by grace and mercy. In his name, amen.